to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is November 9th, 2018. And joining me in the virtual studio is Doug, Elliot, Tiffany, and I am your host today, Erica. Hello. 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 So today our topic is, why is glycine so enticing? <laughs> we were kind of For reaching poets. on the... <laughs> on the on the rhyme there, I think. Yeah. So glycine is a conditionally essential amino acid, and we'll get into that. What that means? Um, one of the twenty amino acids that are the building blocks of protein. Glycine is produced by the body, and if you're healthy enough, can be found abundantly in tendons, ligaments, connective tissue, and skin, keeping them all firm and flexible. In the diet, animal foods are the greatest source of this potent amino acid, and it helps with uh, inflammation. It has numerous health benefits, including regulation of circadian rhythms, normalizing blood sugar, aiding in digestion, detoxification, sleep, healing, and much more. So today we're going to discuss glycine and share our ideas mm -hmm. mm. and just as a side note we did a show a few weeks ago about <laughs> supplements and we are now again talking about supplementing but we're gonna focus on the importance of getting glycine from foods yeah mm. yes so where do we start what is glycine oh well, yeah why don't we start with what it is and why it's not technically essential, but some people are saying that it should be semi-essential or conditionally essential because the body can make it, the liver can make glycine, but depending on your level of health, your age or other factors, <clears throat> you might not make enough glycine to meet all of your needs. So that's why people say that it should be conditionally essential. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's an amino acid. So for those who don't know what an amino acid is, um, proteins, uh, say animal protein or plant protein, any protein in nature is made up of building blocks. And those building blocks are amino acids. And so in a particular protein, you have lots of different amino acids. And people might have heard of amino acids before, such as methionine, or cysteine, or taurine, or arginine. And glycine is just one of those. But um, different kinds of foods contain a different spectrum of amino acids. And the, the variety of amino acids is basically what determines one protein from another protein. So say, if you look at muscle meat, muscle meat is higher in certain amino acids, such as methionine, and cysteine, and tryptophan. Whereas if you look at um, certain plant proteins or if you look at uh, the skin or the collagen, that has a higher ratio of glycine and less methionine and cysteine. So when you digest a protein, what you do in your intestine is you're breaking down in your stomach, you're breaking down the protein into its constituent amino acids. And then the amino acids are absorbed via the digestive tract. And 
you, you, you basically you deal with the amino acids in different ways. So you might take the amino acids to synthesize new proteins, or you might take the amino acids to aid in detoxification or for some other purpose. So that's basically what an amino acid is, and that's what glycine is. Um, but glycine is a really interesting one because the amount, of, the amount of glycine that you have is kind of dependent on your ability to synthesize it. And likewise, it's dependent on the amount of other amino acids that you have. Because if you have, certain of two, if you have too many of certain amino acids, then this can increase your requirement for glycine. And likewise, if your body's under stress or in various other situations, you may not be able to synthesize glycine. And so the idea that they say that it's a non-essential amino acid, meaning that you don't need to get it from your diet because you can synthesize it. But really, if you look at how you synthesize it, that is dependent on lots of factors. And so a good argument could be made that it kind of is an essential amino acid, especially mm -hmm. in our modern day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is the, uh, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, Elliot, but um, is it made, when the, when the body makes glycine, is it making it from other amino acids? It's just kind of converting them into glycine? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. I thought so, yeah. So regardless of whether or not um, you're actually getting glycine, or sorry, whether you're getting, yeah, whether you're getting glycine, you would need to be getting at least protein in some way so your body is able to kind of make glycine with the constituent parts that it needs. Mm. Yeah, so to synthesize any amino acid, you need nitrogen. Yeah, and nitrogen mm. is, is basically mostly coming in from your protein. Okay, um, so to synthesize um, glycine, let me try and think. I don't remember exactly which, which amino acids you need to synthesize glycine. I'll find out now. Right. But wow. yeah. yeah. So if you were a vegetarian would or, you, vegan. or a vegan, would you be able to get glycine? You can. Yeah. yeah. It is in plant foods, yeah, but yeah. not as abundant as you find it in animal foods. Um, particularly, um, I mean, probably the best source of glycine would be something along the lines of bone broth, where you're actually boiling bones and tendons and those sorts of things and releasing all the good collagen. Because mm -hmm. glycine is, uh, I think collagen is, what is it, 35% um, glycine? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so that's kind of the richest source you'll find kind of in the diet, which is one of the reasons, one of the major reasons actually that bone broth is so incredibly good for you. Mm -hmm. And if you ever look at long-term vegans, you notice that a lot of them have really premature aging signs, like the crow's feet and the saggy skin, and they're just in their 40s or something. They look kind of awful. They've got a glycine deficiency. Yeah, among other things. <laughs> yeah. So the way that you synthesize glycine is um, from the amino acid serine, okay? And that's found mm. in lots of different things. 
Um, but to synthesize glycine, you need activated methylfolate. So that's mm. um, vitamin B9. So most people have probably heard when we're talking about like genetics, most people have probably heard about um, the MTHFR gene, which is basically involved in the series of steps, um, the cycle of methylation, which essentially converts folic acid or folate, which is found in food, into the activated methylfolate. Yeah, and so there's lots of things that can sort of slow down that process or that can, um, that can affect someone's ability to do that. And so theoretically, uh, glycine can be made. But again, like as I said, there's so many factors that come into that um, that can potentially um, influence someone's ability to make glycine. It's much safer to get it in from the diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like if somebody had a, the MTHFR mutation where they're not a good methylator, they would probably not be able to make very much glycine. Theoretically, I mean, that's, that's a possibility. Hmm. Does your ability to synthesize it decrease as you get older? So like Tiffany was talking about when you see people aging, especially skin and whatnot, mm. um, you know, wrinkles or um, does your body slow down the production of as, as you get older? Or? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I'd assume all things become sort of taxed, you know, and mm -hmm. they do say that um, the the efficiency of the methylation process does tend to like decrease with age along with like everything else so you have increased oxidation and generally increased dna damage and that sort of stuff throughout your life um and so i'd imagine that most functions tend to sort of slow down or become less efficient uh, so i I'd wonder imagine that that's probably that, one of them i, I wonder about that depend. though because i think that like they say that all the time, right? Like this gets worse with age, this mm -hmm. gets worse with age. But it, the people that they're looking at are people who have been eating crap their entire lives. So it's like, yeah, you know, there's some wear and tear on the body. Um, I mean, naturally there's gonna be some wear and tear on the body. So I think there is some level of things getting worse with age. But I honestly wonder like how many of these things that they're like, like you know, they say, oh yeah, stomach acid production gets worse as you age. But does it, or is it just, it gets worse the longer you're on crappy diet yeah uh, yeah that's kind of along the lines of what i was thinking like um there are a lot of things that are considered normal but they're not normal they're just common uh. so it's common for people to kind of just break down as they age but really yeah. it just depends on diet so i think that um maybe with age and maybe with prolonged crap diet or a standard american diet where you're eating lots of carbs and you're probably not eating as much protein as you should or if you are eating protein you're not eating like broths and collagens and organs and you're just eating too much muscle meats when you do eat the protein i think that can factor into it also mm -hmm. well and especially since things like skin are falling out of favor it's really hard to find especially chicken with the skin on now mm -hmm. and people think pork rinds <laughs> are a dirty word yeah. But the thing about pork rinds, you got to be careful because they're probably fried in canola oil or something stupid. 
Yeah, you got to watch out for it. It's like, why not fly, fry it in lard? Yeah. It's like the fat is right there. Just use that <laughs> stuff. Don't go and grab a terrible vegetable oil and use that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, just reading an article off of uh, Dr. Axe on his site, um, he says that um, glycine can be used to help lower the symptoms of people suffering from conditions like ulcers, arthritis, leaky gut syndrome, diabetes, kidney and heart failure, neurobehavioral disorders, chronic fatigue, sleep disorders, and even certain cancers. So it clearly is something that has multiple uses in the body mm-hmm. um, and can be, you know, when taken supplementally can um, help in a lot of different things. I also yeah. found it interesting in that article how he said it can improve flexibility and range of motion. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm wondering if people have uh, surgeries like shoulder surgery or knee surgery or even back surgery, things like that, if supplementing with glycine, ideally from a food source, would help mm-hmm. the recovery process quicker. Yeah, I bet it would. I mean, I know it's very good for wound healing. Um, so I can see how that would also be um, like apply to recovering from other things like surgeries or, mm-hmm. um, you know, even like workouts. It's supposed to be very helpful for recovery in that sense. And it makes sense. I mean, if it's a structural component of like so much of our body, then it just makes sense that having a lot of it on hand for your body to use would be helpful for healing. Mm. I think it kind of harkens back to ancient practices, like if a certain body part of yours was in distress, you'd eat the corresponding body part from the animal. Mm -hmm. So if your tendons and ligaments are all jacked up, why not eat a cow's tendons and ligaments? (laughs) Even if you can't eat them whole, I mean, you can get some bones, not just, you know, scraped bones, but bones that have like some bits of tendon and ligament and little flesh on there and boil them up and... Yeah. 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 Definitely. And if you're going crazy, you can eat a brain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, another one of the um, benefits is uh, calms the nervous system and feeds the brain. So, speaking of brains, <laughs> and I'm wondering uh, maybe, Elliot, you can share how. It would do what it does in the brain. I mean, how can it cause? I mean, I know in some of our readings we've read about how they use it to help people with schizophrenia Mm -hmm. or even OCD tendencies. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was just about to add in, just before we get onto that, I was going to add something about collagen synthesis, but Mm -hmm. I realized that my mic was muted. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, So, yeah, basically. Collagen is the most abundant protein in the body, okay? It makes up, like, practically, well, it's your entire cytoskeleton. Like, every bone is connected together via collagen, and all of the extracellular matrix and everything that connects each cell to one another is is essentially collagen, okay? So it's like this vast web that, I mean, they... They call it the fascia. So the mm-hmm. fascia is 
you know, a large part collagen. And collagen is this amazing protein, which is like elastic, but it's really firm and it's supple. And a third of collagen is made up of glycine. And so by taking glycine, by consuming glycine, um, you can actually stimulate collagen synthesis. Um, and it depends what kind of glycine you're taking. So by taking glycine in the form of a, um, of a collagen, hydrolyzed collagen protein supplements such as, you know, you can get all sorts of um, collagen or gelatin supplements, but one of them is hydrolyzed collagen. And so that's collagen peptides, uh, the, the step up of amino acids. And basically it's been shown that when you take those, um, you actually absorb collagen peptides and they get used directly for collagen synthesis. So there was one study that showed um, that consuming 10 grams of glycine per day um, increased the serum concentration levels of glycine, um, which are associated with 200% increase in the rate of collagen synthesis. Um, and so you, you can improve collagen synthesis by taking glycine. That's certainly something for anyone who has any kind of muscular um, disorder like tendonitis or um, they've got a strain or a sprain or something like that, then taking collagen or supplementing with glycine can definitely be beneficial for that. Um, but on the topic of the brain, so glycine is, it's an amino acid, but it also acts as an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the nervous system. And what inhibitory means is that it basically shuts things down. So when your neurons are firing really rapidly, um, sometimes they can fire too rapidly, and this is called excitotoxicity. And when they fire too rapidly, this means that you can get all sorts of horrible side effects like neuroinflammation and oxidative stress and things which actually damage the neurons and stop the cells from working properly. So what glycine can do is it can basically turn off the neurons essentially. Um, and yeah, this is why it's been very useful for sleep. Well, this is one of the reasons I think. Um, and it's interesting because it can be used for people with neuropsychiatric disorders. So there was, I think there was one study where they showed uh, for schizophrenia to combat psychoses, you could actually, um, they found that supplementing 60 grams, so that's six that's zero, yeah, six zero grams, um, like more than half of a hundred grams, um, yeah, was actually effective in, in, um, in treating psychosis in these people. And I can't mm -hmm. remember how long they did that for, um, but from what I understand, there weren't any side effects. Um, and so glycine is, as, as just a standard amino acid powder, has been supplemented in various studies at very high doses, like some of them 10 grams, 20 grams. But again, like um, it can be used in, in in very high doses and actually have a very ben beneficial effect. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but on the topic of sleep, like calming things down and inhibiting neurons and stuff like that, what's very interesting is that glycine can 
can be used to promote sleep. And typically you would take three to five grams around an hour before bed. And this is about one to two tablespoons, depending on how much you're having and how large your tablespoons are. Well, but what they've... Sorry, is go it ahead. that much? I thought that a teaspoon was about four, four grams. Or five grams, maybe. I, th I think the glycine is quite light. Oh, uh, the powder okay. is actually quite light. So um, from what I understand, what, the last time I weighed it, like five grams was about a level tablespoon and a half or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you'd have to check, but I'm fairly sure that, yeah, glycine is quite light in, in that sense. Mm. Um, so there's a, a bulk um, for, for how much it weighs. And so glycine can be used, and it has been successfully used in multiple different sleep studies. Um, and it's like consistently shown to be beneficial for people who have problems with sleep. And so there's two areas of sleep that it really can benefit. And one is falling asleep. So it reduces sleep latency. What this means is that if you get into bed and you find it difficult to fall asleep, say you're laying in bed for an hour or something, ruminating, uh, glycine has been shown to, to reduce that significantly. So someone may take an hour to fall asleep, they may only take 20 minutes to fall asleep or something like that. Likewise, glycine can also improve the sleep quality. So it Reduce it, it reduces the time to reach what is called slow wave sleep, which is REM sleep. Um, sorry, no, not REM sleep, NREM sleep, I think. And, um, and it's the, the people who took glycine actually reported better um, feelings when they woke up, so they didn't feel as tired, and they had um, improved cognitive capacity throughout the day. Um, and that's very interesting, because... What it actually does, aside from inhibiting things in the nervous system, it can actually help lower the body temperature. And it's this sort of drastic drop in body temperature, which is one of the triggers for, for actually um, sleep. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if there's anyone with any sleep issues, this is definitely something worth trying. Yeah, a lot of people complain about being hot in the middle of the night and having to throw the covers off. So I suspect the glycine would be good for that. But I was watching a YouTube video about some guy who had insomnia. And he was saying that glycine worked for him at first, but then after a while it just made his insomnia worse. And like the comments were mixed, like seemed like half the people glycine worked wonders for their sleep and then the other half people were saying, yeah, it just made my sleep worse after a while. So I'm wondering if part of that could be um, since glycine does have an effect on lowering blood sugar, like could it lower your blood sugar too much at night that you wake mm. up and feel the need you know, to, to eat or you wake up because you're hungry or because yeah. your blood sugar dropped too low? I mean, that's a really good question. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, but it seems that, yeah, it's um, when you read the comments and subjective sort of anecdotes of people, it works for some people, but then other people it doesn't seem to work. Um, and I don't, most things, don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it works for me really well. Like, um, I don't actually use it because I don't need any help falling asleep. But 
Um, but when I was having troubles, glycine definitely like made me feel kind of drowsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what it, it's interesting the effects that it has on blood sugar regulation. So they found that taking, um, I think it's three to five grams before a meal, like 20 minutes or 30 minutes before a meal, what it can actually do is um, prevent the postprandial glucose um, or hyperglycemia. So if you were to eat like a starchy meal, then you would probably get a quite a high spike in blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Whereas what glycine can do is it can actually, um, it can it can reduce that. Like I don't know what levels it can reduce it to, but um, so it says, ah, right, okay. So um, there's one study showing that I think it's 25 grams of glycine reduced peak glucose by 11%, and the total glucose response over two hours um, by 66% compared to glucose alone. Hmm. Um, so apparently, what it does is it enhances the insulin response. I don't know if that's necessarily something that would be beneficial for everyone, but if there's a problem with producing insulin, um, then it seems to it seems to benefit that. So guys, I just looked it up. Um, one teaspoon of glycine is 4.1 grams. So, Oh, wow. Well, I got that wrong then. <laughs> yeah. So, so you were saying to take like five or six grams before, um, like an hour before bed? Yeah. So that'd be like a teaspoon and a half probably. Right. And since we were talking about sleep, we do have um, a clip of Chris Masterjohn um, talking about uh, getting better sleep with um, glycine. Do we want to play that? Yeah. Okay. If you have trouble sleeping, or if you seem to sleep fine but you don't feel rested and energetic during the day, then this video is for you. It could be that the solution to your problems is as simple as glycine. Hi. I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Chris Masterjohn Lite, where the name of the game is Detail Schmitels. Just tell me what works. And one thing that can work for better sleep is three grams of glycine before bed. Now, there's a few ways to do this, but first let's talk about why it works. Studies have shown that not only does glycine have a calming effect in the brain, to help you wind down and prepare for sleep, but also it helps lower your core body temperature at night, which is one of the things that makes your sleep more effective. When you fall asleep, you get into slow wave sleep quicker and you stay stable in that state. And so what happens is not only might you get more sleep, but your sleep might be more restful so that even though glycine itself has a calming effect, you may feel more energized during the day. The studies that have been done have used three grams of glycine. There are a couple ways to get that. One is to just buy a glycine supplement. I don't care which one you use really, but take the glycine supplement in the amount that provides three grams of glycine right before bed. Another way to do that, and one that I frequently advocate as a way of getting glycine, is to take collagen. Hydrolyzed collagen, such as Great Lakes or Vital Proteins, 
One serving generally provides a little over three grams of glycine. Just make sure you look at the nutrition facts to make sure that that's what you're getting. Now, should you do one or the other? Well, you really have to try it. So I have some clients who report that they get gastrointestinal distress when they take free glycine, but not when they take hydrolyzed collagen. I have another client who takes free glycine because he gets GI distress from taking hydrolyzed collagen and not free glycine. I have another client who doesn't get GI distress from either of these supplements, but collagen doesn't help her sleep and it looks like free glycine does. Why might that be the case? Well, one of the reasons that glycine promotes a common effect in the brain is that it antagonizes the excitatory effects of another amino acid, glutamate. If you're taking hydrolyzed collagen, you're getting some glutamate in it. And so the glycine might not be as effective for you if messing with that ratio is really what you need. Additionally, it might be the case that just taking the glycine on its own helps the glycine get better into the brain when there aren't as many competing amino acids. So that might be one reason that you need to try free glycine. And if collagen doesn't work for you, don't rule out that free glycine might be the answer. On the other hand, my best friend says that she needs about 20 grams of glycine. And in order to get that amount of glycine, she needs to rely on collagen. And if she takes it as free glycine, she feels super out of it, out of breath, and like she's dying. So every the point is everyone's a little bit different. Start slow with three grams. Don't use higher until you know you need it. I'll talk about how to know that in the next video, in two videos from now. Um, start slow with three grams. Make sure that you try free glycine and you try collagen. Pick the one that works the best with the least GI distress, if that's an issue, and the best results that makes you feel the best, sleep the best, and feel the most rested and energized when you wake up. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Chris Masterjohn Light, and I will see you in the next video. Yeah, thanks, okay. Chris. <laughs> thanks, Chris. <laughs> next video. So, yeah, three, three grams of glycine. That's actually not very much. That's like three quarters of a teaspoon. Mm -hmm. So, you can yeah, get two tablespoons. <laughs> Some people like to dial it up to ten. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names here, but but still, it's important to note how we said that everybody's different and everybody reacts differently to different types of uh, glycine, whether it comes as free glycine or in collagen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that might actually explain why some of the people in the YouTube comments you were reading, mm -hmm. some people were like, nah, it doesn't work. And other people were like, no, nah, it works amazing. Yeah. So as with everything, experiment. <laughs> Self-experimentation <laughs> is fun. Yes. So, so do, do we want to talk say? about bone broth and how... You have to be careful if that's your go-to source to try to boost your collagen and glycine levels. You have to be careful with your bones and where you get them from. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
particularly because um, of the glyphosate issue, yes. which is basically that um, glyphosate is essentially a fake glycine molecule. Um, it's a scientifically created um, glycine molecule, more or less, and it's used as an herbicide, and it is currently sprayed just about everywhere. Um, so it has completely saturated our environment, and because it is um, so close in structure to glycine, it will actually replace glycine um, in a lot of, uh, well, in structures all over nature. So if you're, the animals you're eating are eating feed that is um, covered in glyphosate, then the bones will be, um, will have incorporated that glyphosate into their structure where it should be using glycine. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're not getting good bones um, from like organic pasture-raised animals, and unfortunately even then it's not 100%, um, but yeah, you, you might be actually getting a good dose of glyphosate in your bone broth. That's so sad because you think you're doing yourself such a great favor by drinking this hearty, rich bone broth and you're going to mm -hmm. boost your health and then glyphosate, as usual, with everything. It's like the bane of humanity, glyphosate is. So glyphosate rears its ugly head and ruins your meal once again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really quite depressing because... Um because collagen is, is going to be like the highest dietary source, I think, mm -hmm. other than if someone's consuming like tons of grains. Like unfortunately, like the gelatin in jelly sweets, you know, like Haribo and things like that. Um, and then also the, the collagen-rich tissues of the animals that have consumed the grains. Um, it's very possible that it's going to be in that. I think Dr. Stephanie Seneff was saying on the interview that we did that she or one of her colleagues had done an experiment and they had measured um, various animal proteins because it's not even just in the collagen-rich um, tissues. It's also, it permeates the muscle tissue as well. So mm -hmm. it's actually what kind of binds muscle fibers together. So there's collagen like everywhere. And I think that she was saying one of her colleagues measured the um, the muscle tissue, and they actually found glyphosate inside the inside the muscle. And it was like, how on earth did it get there? <laughs> mm -hmm. And then that, a la her theory, was that actually it's replacing glycine in protein synthesis, which would kind of make sense. But then that's kind of scary um, mm -hmm. because glyphosate can't do what glycine can do and so if you're making loads of proteins that are meant to have glycine in but you replace it with glyphosate then that protein is going to be dysfunctional and that might be able to explain why maybe tendons rupture and this kind of stuff or how enzymes stop working like she was talking about in the pancreas um about i think it's um the beta cells maybe or um, it was it was in the pancreas, and she was I think she was talking about enzymatic production, so the production of protein um, degrading enzymes, proteases, and she was talking about how if theoretically if glyphosate was replacing glycine in this enzyme, then the people would be unable to produce enzymes which break down protein, and she thinks that this might be one of the reasons why children with autism 
typically have such a hard problem like digesting food is maybe because they're not producing the protein breaking down enzymes because glyphosate has like um, got its way into the pancreas. Hmm. Yeah. Well, she um, published a paper as well that was talking about how ALS is actually, um, well, showing a, a model that would explain ALS in terms of um, glyphosate intoxication. And a lot of it were, you know, it, it was, you know, mitochondrial damage um, through glycine substitution was essentially the main thing, as well as the fact that uh, glyphosate will chelate minerals. So it's basically just sucking like manganese, copper, and zinc like right out of, uh, right out of the system. Yeah. Um, well, that's scary. Yeah. What are Certainly. what were some of the good sources that were mentioned before? Great Lakes collagen. Mm -hmm. Like if you could get. Yeah, that's from Argentinian Argentinian oh. grass-fed beef. So it's not like and from Lake too. Huron, Lake Superior, and Lake Erie. <laughs> not those Great <laughs> not Lakes. That I know of. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's weird that it's called Great Lakes actually, and that it's from Argentina. Yeah. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah, but those those animals are like, from what I understand, they're 100% grass-fed and reared on, you know, all organic soils and everything like that. So mm -hmm. I think that's a fairly safe bet, and it's fairly cheap as well. Like, yeah. you can get, uh, I think it's 16 ounces. In the UK, you can get that for like £20. Mm -hmm. But if you're just taking sort of two tablespoons of that per day, um, then it works out to to be not so expensive you know um but just to divert quickly away from that topic just to go into some of the other um functions of glycine um as i said you know i was saying before the show like glycine is probably my favorite amino acid and that's because <laughs> it just seems so versatile and so safe to supplement with and so um, effective for so many things and so aside from being like making up a large portion of collagen it also makes up a third of glutathione so glutathione is the master antioxidant inside the cell mm -hmm. and it's basically what you use to get rid of all the bad things so you conjugate them with glutathione and you essentially detox them via the liver. Um, and so glutathione status is really important. And it's been shown that glycine can boost um, glutathione synthesis because glutathione is made up of three amino acids. And one of those, a third of that, is glycine. Um, and not only does it make up a third of glutathione, but it also in and of itself is part of detoxification. So you have something called amino acid detoxification or amino acid conjugation. And this is basically where you take a specific amino acid and you bind it with a specific kind of toxin. And then you carry it out via the um, either via the intestines or via the urine. And what's interesting with glycine is you have this glycination it's called and this is a type of amino acid conjugation and so glycine not only is it part of glutathione 
the glutathione detoxification system, but it also in and of itself can bind with the crap and take it out. So it's really important to get rid of salicylates. So salicylates are like uh, plant compounds. They You find them in like various fruits and vegetables and berries and spices and stuff. Um, and many people can have problems with salicylate sensitivities. So this can present something similar to like a histamine type reaction. It can cause hives. It can cause like flushing in the face. I think it can also cause kind of like allergies or it can, it can appear as, as allergic reactions. Mm -hmm. It can cause digestive issues and all sorts of crazy kinds of stuff. And, and many people have issues with salicylates and when they take them out of the diet, um, they find it to be very beneficial. Um, but, but in order to, to detoxify salicylates, you, you actually need to use glycine. So that's it's glycine amino acid conjugation is how you get rid of that. And so it's, I guess, theoretical, theoretically possible that if you were to be low on glycine, then that may predispose someone toward having a salicylate sensitivity. Hmm. Um, and so for those people, examining their glycine status, uh, maybe supplementing with collagen or making sure to eat more animal skin, animal bones, animal tendons, and things like that, they might find that that actually helps with their salicylates. Hmm. Um, another thing is that glycine is, you need it to make heme, and hemoglobin carries oxygen in the blood. Um, and so if you think of a situation where um, someone someone does not get much glycine in the diet or perhaps they're eating something else that is using up the glycine or uh, reducing the amount that can be used or whatever then this may also be a problem they may have low oxygen binding capacity in the blood so it has so many effects but one thing i want to talk about is that um, now, I don't know if this applies to like a carnivore-based approach because it seems like all bets are off when we talk about like the carnivore diet. I don't think anyone really knows. But on a normal diet, typically the more muscle meat that you consume um, theoretically raises the, raises the requirement for glycine in the diet. And this kind of makes perfect sense, evolutionarily speaking, because if you look at traditional cultures, then these are the kinds of people who, well, it's been, it's been shown that the way that they cook their food and the foods that they eat, they typically practice something called nose-to-tail eating. What this means is that they eat the whole of the animal. They eat the bones, they eat the skin, they eat the gristly bits, they eat the organs, they eat all of that sort of stuff. And when you start looking at the amino acid composition of the different kinds of meats or the different kinds of components that make up the body of the animal, you see that there's vast differences in glycine content. So as I said before, the muscle meat, muscle meat is not very high in glycine, but it's very high in methionine and cysteine. And yet, if you look at the skin, it's very high in glycine and quite low in methionine and cysteine. And so 
if you were to eat the whole of the animal, these things would balance out perfectly. Yeah? And the, the question is, is why, why do you need to consume more glycine with the more muscle meat that you eat? And I think this is a very important question because if you look in today's society, um, we typically eat only in the muscles and we get rid of all of the gristle. And so like, like the most expensive steak that you can buy in the UK anyway is a fillet steak. And if you look at fillet steak, there's practically zero fat on it and there's practically zero gristle. It's just pure muscle meat. And so we look at what we get from muscles. We take methionine in very high amounts and we take cysteine as well. And what does the body do with these? Well, we talk about the methylation cycle. So the methylation cycle is basically a biochemical sort of set of reactions which has to do with turning methionine, taking the methyl group from methionine and converting it to homocysteine. And basically what you're doing is you're passing around methyl groups. These are very basic um, uh, components and essentially this is involved in DNA synthesis and neurotransmitter synthesis and detoxification and all of these other kinds of things. We don't need to go into the details of what methylation is. You just need to know it's very important. And the more methionine that you consume, essentially, if you take in too much methionine, you can have an excess of methyl donors. And this can have quite a negative effect. Whereas what glycine does is it actually buffers those. So glycine, glycine can be used to essentially counteract the negative effects of excess methionine, if that makes any sense. And you can see these in the animal studies. So there's very interesting studies, and this is something that is used by vegetarians quite a lot and vegans. And what they'll typically cite is, I can't find the research paper, that, but there was one research paper which showed that feeding animals, feeding rats um, with a high methionine diet caused detrimental health effects and I think it killed them but those effects could be offset by feeding the mice with glycine um, and so glycine seems to have sort of um, counteractive effects on excess methionine and cysteine and so there's a very delicate balance between the different amino acids that we eat um, and that by eating a vast array of amino acids they can sort of fix themselves if that makes sense the body knows what to do with it whereas when you only when you limit yourself to a certain set of amino acids this can cause problems now I say this but when we talk about a carnivore diet and people living on purely steak for 20 years and appearing fit and healthy afterwards then we have to kind of start asking questions uh, <laughs> because I don't know if this applies to them but this seems to apply to people on a normal diet Yep, so I think it generally speaks to the fact that human beings, if they're going to eat meat um, as part of a balanced diet, then they should probably also eat the rest of the animal as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. a good point, because when you're on a regular diet that consists of a high amount of carbohydrates, and you compare that person to someone who just eats meat, like pretty much all bets are off, because you have no idea what the interaction like carbs have been known to slow the absorption of certain 
minerals and nutrients in the body. So you can assume that that probably translates to amino acids as well. So you kind of kind of have to start with a blank slate if you're talking about a a carnivore versus uh, a sad diet eater. Well, yeah, the physiology totally changes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really difficult. And, I mean, a lot of times you read stuff about, um, you know, people telling you why the carnivore diet isn't good. Mm-hmm. And they're using, you know, studies on people who weren't eating a carnivore diet. Yeah. They just said, look, these people ate too much, uh, too much meat and this is what happened. And it's like, well, that's not the same thing. Like, you can't, you, you can't kind of take, you can't, you know, it's, you can't take somebody who's eating a normal-ish diet and try and apply, apply the results to carnivore because everything is so different. Yeah. That being said, I think maybe as a, um, you know, a caveat to that is that, you know, you can be careful by, like Elliot was saying, eating the whole animal or yeah. eating bone broth or, or something along those lines to try and make sure, you know, if there is any problem with that, you can offset it. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some carnivores who just swear by eating nothing but muscle meat and they mm-hmm. stay away from things like broth or organs and things like that, so... Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I saw I saw from from the studies in humans cuz there's I think there's around 350 altogether. Um but they're in on similar things, but if you like look at the animal studies, there's so many. Like there's so mm. many studies on animals Loads of rat all kinds studies. of things. <laughs> yeah, loads of rat studies. Um and there's this blogger his name is Vladimir um, Hiskanin. I think that's how you pronounce it. But his website is called valtsuits.blogspot.com. And he, a couple of years ago, he wrote a very, very long um, article on, it's quite comprehensive actually, on the effects of glycine. And he compilated lots of research and he he included some of the research on animals and so I'm just gonna read out some of the things that it 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 does when you when you feed it to rats and mice so in terms of cancer it slows down the tumor growth in rats and mice Um, it protects from diabetes induced harmful effects on kidneys eyes blood sugar immune function and total mortality um, you can reverse fatty liver with glycine. Uh, it protects the rats from liver injury caused by methionine and choline restriction, alcohol, chemotherapy, bile duct litigation, ligation, partial hepatectomy, hemorrhagic shock, sepsis, and corn oil. Yeah, so it protects against PUFA. Um, and that's really interesting. I don't know what the mechanism is for that but it protects rats from dental caries from lead toxicity from arthritis from tendon inflammation from pancreatitis osteoporosis uh platelet aggregation i mean there's so much of this um but one of the one of the theories as to how it has such amazing effects is basically i think a similar effect that it has in the nervous system in that it's just very inhibitory and so if you look at like various of these diseases which are related to inflammation it can actually help to turn off the immune response so often all of the 
the negative effects that you see in various diseases which are related to like chronic inflammation, uh, it, they're immune cell mediated. So it's the immune cells which are actually causing like the physiological and structural changes when they become like activated and overactive. Whereas the glycine tends to actually switch off the immune cells, like switch off the inflammatory components. Um, and by doing that, it actually seems to protect the organs, especially the liver. And I found that particularly interesting. Um, now the question is, can glycine protect against the effects of glyphosate? And I don't know, I've been thinking about this. I asked Stephanie Seneff about it and she said that there wasn't, she didn't know of any research on this. But I would like to think it was theoretically possible. Because if you imagine, if you have glyphosate in the intestines and you have glycine, say you take glycine with a meal that contains glyphosate, is there a possibility that you're going to absorb the glycine, some of the glycine at least, instead of the glyphosate? I mean, that might make sense. And if the glycine that you're consuming extra, like say if you supplement glycine, is that going to increase collagen turnover? So say if you incorporate glyphosate into collagen or into a, another protein, is taking glycine going to potentially displace that glyphosate and add in the glycine to, to, to sort of replace that? I don't know, but I, you know, I like to think that that was possible. Why don't um, you try an experiment? <laughs> like, <laughs> eat a high glyphosate meal. <laughs> And then take some glycine along with it. How would you know? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can measure <laughs> your measure your poop for glyphosate. So you, you can measure urinary glyphosate, but there's okay. yeah, there's mm. qu there's questions about whether that can provide um, like uh, a, an accurate representation. Because if mm -hmm. it's, you think, if the glyphosate has actually been incorporated into your tissue, then there's a good chance that it's not going to come out in the urine. So, yeah. <laughs> right. so it's, it's kind of difficult to say, I think. Hmm. But other than that, glycine is just like a really cool amino acid. <laughs> you should I can name see your firstborn daughter glycine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. I'm kind of being won over by Elliot here. I'm thinking that maybe it's my favorite amino acid now, too. It used to be taurine, but now, uh, yeah, glycine. Glycine, I think, is winning. Yeah, glycine sounds pretty good so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of other things that I wanted to talk about as well, but I can't think of them at the moment. I had some notes, but I can't find them. Well, I think one of the things... When we're talking about practicalities, um, about glycine absorption, so from what I understand, glycine is best absorbed um, when it's taken with other proteins. So mm -hmm. when it's taken, say for instance, this would be a good argument to take a collagen supplement rather than a glycine supplement. But like Chris Masterjohn has spoken about in the past, that depending on the reason why you would want to take glycine, that might influence whether you were going to take the powder or the collagen supplement. And there's individual variability as well. But in general, I think one of the recommendations is, is especially if you're going to do a workout. So when you are, say you're going to lift some weights, 
you're inevitably going to place strain on your tendons, on your collagen. You're going to break down some collagen because that is part of muscle breakdown and then muscle th synthesis. That's why you lift weights is to break down muscle in some cases anyway. And so if you are going to have a workout, then there's good reason to believe that if you were to take a collagen supplement beforehand, maybe in like a smoothie or like say if you have maybe a hot chocolate or a buttered coffee or something, maybe add in some collagen into that. And there's good reason to believe that that might actually um, help to increase recovery time and to um, protect your tendons and your muscles. Yeah, so that might be something that is worth considering. Now, with glycine, I mean, if we talk about the toxicity or the safety of it, it, it seems as though for the majority of people, it is safe. And there's a little bit of debate about whether you should be taking it if you have a problem with oxalates. So hmm. oxalates are like these chemicals found in foods. Well, they're not chemicals. They're basically like... Um, they're not elements, they're crystals essentially. They occur in nature and they're found in plants. And what they do is they chelate minerals, but they're also, if you look at them on a microsc microscope, they're like spiky, spiky balls. They're like spiky crystal things. <laughs> they're, they're really wouldn't interesting they be, if you look at them. Wouldn't they be the, the defense mechanism of the plant? That's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly what it, what it is. And they're, they're extremely high in certain plants like uh, sweet potatoes, spinach, um, all kinds of nuts, especially almonds. Um, they're high in chocolate, in cocoa, um, and they're quite high in Swiss chard and kale and basically the leafy greens, a lot of the leafy greens and a lot of the other things, and generally in potatoes as well. And so they're like a defense mechanism. And there are a subset of people who do seem to have like a serious problem with metabolizing oxalate. And this could be for lots of other reasons. Um, but if, say for instance, if the body cannot effectively deal with the oxalate load, say if someone goes on one of these health fad diets and they eat a bunch of spinach and almond flour cookies and they like juice their kale and their spinach every day, chances are they're getting like a lot of oxalate in their diet. And this can cause a problem whereby they are more susceptible to um, to the effects of oxalates. Okay, And if you look at the metabolic pathway of glycine, glycine can be converted into oxalate into the inside the body. And so people who are overburdened with oxalate, when they get to a certain point, when their body is under so much oxidative stress, they can actually start producing oxalate themselves as well. And this is one of the concerns about people taking glycine, because glycine theoretically could contribute toward internal oxalate synthesis. And so Chris Massajan has said that he doesn't believe this to be much of a problem. Um, because the glyoxalate pathway, the pathway by which gly gly glycine can convert to oxalate, is kind of like a minor pathway, and glycine is more, more likely to be um, used in protein synthesis and in glutathione synthesis and everything um, before that's going to happen. 
but also there is the work of Dr. Susan Owens and she has quite a large group of people I think it's about 15,000 people on a group who've spoken a lot about oxalate and they have essentially found that people who do have oxalate problems um, when they consume glycine supplements and when they have uh, bone broth and collagen supplements it actually really exacerbates their symptoms and so whilst theoretically the glycine to oxalate pathway might be minor it seems that it does occur in some people now there's not a lot of research onto this but I think this is because there's not a lot of research into oxalates like period because yeah, there's, there's some misconceptions about how it's only important for kidney stones. But ultimately, it seems like it's a much bigger problem, and it might affect a lot more people than we know about. Um, and so that is something to consider. You know, if you're the type of person who has, who has been, um, who has had a history of kidney stones, there's a very good chance that there's a problem with oxalates, and that by taking glycine, it may potentially have a negative effect there. But the jury's not out on that one, so I don't think anyone really knows. Um, yeah. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm just it, it synthesizing in my brain everything you just shared. Sorry about that. The lag in. Uh... <sighs> Yeah, but overall, overall oh. it seems to be safe for most people, yeah? Mm. And ideally, and so you would want to get it from food. But if you can't get it from food, or if you're diabetic, or you have problems with sleep, or you have problems with blood sugar management, or you have fatty liver, it might be worth a try. Yeah. A safe dose is around 3 grams per day. And I know that they offer it in like a powder form. Um, in the past, I've used it uh, to sweeten tea or coffee. Yeah, it's sweet. It tastes really good. Mm -hmm. And so you can get a, a good amount by using what? A teaspoon? Say you have a, a warm drink three times three, a day? Three grams would be about three quarters of a teaspoon. Three quarters of a teaspoon. Yeah, because a, 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 a teaspoon is four grams. 4.1 grams. Yeah. So, what? should we go to our pet health segment? Yeah, sure, why not? This is on dogs and ancient Rome. Hello. And welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, we have a blast from the ancient past and take a look at pet dogs in times of ancient Rome. Listen up to this fascinating information and have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Welcome to How They Did It, a show where we take a look at the daily lives of our ancestors. Now, typically, we focus on how humans have experienced the roller coaster of history, but today, I figured we'd include a special guest who's been with us through thick and thin over the years. Man's best friend. For millennia, dogs have watched as we curiously changed tongue and appearance. But whatever the situation, they've always been by our sides, ready for adventures or napping. Today, we'll be taking a look at the lives of pet dogs in ancient Rome. 
When we peer back into antiquity, we can find all kinds of dogs appearing in literature, mythology, and artwork. Just as today, they came in many shapes, sizes, and colors. Though these would have seemed familiar to us, it's important to remember that there were indeed differences, as many of the modern breeds we commonly interact with today only date back a few centuries. Dog breeds in the past can be categorized by the various roles they filled. These included prominent types, such as hunting dogs, guard dogs, house dogs, and lap dogs. The list goes on to include a wide range of other roles, such as herders, workers, entertainers, and fighters. The Roman writer Gradius provides some interesting details on what we might expect on this front. Quote, Dogs belong to a thousand lands, and they each have characteristics derived from their origin. The Median dog, though undisciplined, is a great fighter, and great glory exalts the far distant Celtic dogs. Those of the Galoni, on the other hand, shirk a combat and dislike fighting, but they have wise instincts. The Persian is quick in both respects. Some rear Mastiff dogs, a breed of unmanageable ferocity, but the Lycaonians, on the other hand, are easy-tempered and big in limb. The Hyrcanian dog, however, is not content with all the energy belonging to his stock. The females of their own kind will seek unions with wild beasts in the woods. And what if you visit the Straits of the Marini, tide swept by a wayward sea, and choose to penetrate even among the Britons? Oh, how great your reward, how great your gain beyond any outlays. If you are not bent on looks and deceptive graces, at any rate, when serious work has come, when bravery must be shown, and the impetuous war god calls in the utmost hazard, then you could not admire the renowned Molossians so much. Apparently, one of the most popular breeds was a Meliton. This was a small, fluffy lap dog with a fox-like pointed nose, upright triangular ears, and a tail curled up over its back, similar to modern-day miniature Spitz-types dogs. Though cute and cuddly, we hear several authors complain that such spoiled toy dogs could be badly behaved and quite yappy. When it came to raising one of the available breeds, your average Roman would go through many of the same steps as we do today. One of the most important first steps would be to name a new puppy. For context, we can turn to the writings of the famous Greek historian Xenophon. He maintains that the best names were short, just one or two syllables, so that the dog can easily be called. As suitable names, he lists 46, which include such popular choices as Lurcher, Whitey, Blacky, Tawny, Blue, Blossom, Keeper, Fencer, Butcher, Spoiler, Hasty, Hurry, Stubborn, Yelp, Tracker, Dash, Happy, Jolly, Trooper, Rockdove, Growler, Fury, Riot, Lance, Pellmel, Plucky, Killer, Crafty, Swift, and Dagger. Some others mentioned by the poet Ovid include Barker, Whirlwind, Storm, Bear, Greedy, Deerslayer, Shaggy, and Spot. Once a dog was named, it would be trained. Many basic commands were likely taught, such as sit, stay, come, and heal. Additional skills were then taught based on the dog's specific role. Hunting dogs, for instance, would be trained to work as a team and return small prey undamaged. Guard dogs would be trained to bark and growl at intruders, and lap dogs would be trained to perform a wide range of amusing tricks for entertainment. Whatever the training, it was recommended that dogs be rewarded, either in the form of food or praise. The historian Arian states that one should pat one's dog, caress its head by pulling gently on the ears, and speak its name along with a hearty word or two. Good boy! 
Good girl. But of course, these activities were just a small part of a dog's life. Much of their time was spent doing things we'd be familiar with today. Going for walks, chasing animals, begging for food, getting in trouble, playing fetch, cuddling, and taking long naps. Really, things haven't changed so much since then. Just as today, people and dogs formed close bonds that lasted a lifetime. The passing of a pet could take quite the toll, and we have many records of individuals grieving for the loss of their companion. What I find particularly touching are the tombs and epitaphs left in remembrance of these loved ones. I'll read you a selection that I find quite touching. To Helena, foster child, soul without comparison, and deserving of praise. Mia, never barked without reason, but now he is silent. My eyes were wet with tears, our little dog, when I bore you to the grave. So Patricus, never again shall you give me a thousand kisses. Never can you be contentedly in my lap. In sadness have I buried you, and you deservest. In a resting place of marble, I have put you for all time by the side of my shade. In your qualities, you were sagacious as a human being. Ah me, what a love companion we have lost. Here the stone says it holds the white dog from Melita, the most faithful guardian of Eumelus. Bull they called him while he was yet alive, but now his voice is imprisoned in the silent pathways of the night. You who pass by, if you see this monument, laugh not, I pray, though it is a dog's grave. Tears fell for me, and dust was heaped above me by a master's hand. I am in tears while carrying you to your last resting place, as much as I rejoiced when bringing you home in my own hands fifteen years ago. I'll admit, reading these passages for the first time brought tears to my eyes. I lost a dog of my own not too long ago, and I can viscerally feel the sorrow carved into each and every word. But at the same time, I have to appreciate that this shared loss puts me in touch with someone from thousands of years ago to a degree that is really impossible any other way. I think we all too often see the past as cold, remote, and even inhuman. I hope that in this video I've been able to shed some light on the universality of the human experience and in particular, celebrate a friendship that transcends time. Well, thank you, Zoya, for that. That was so sad. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. Oh. It is sad. I like some of those dog names, though. Yeah. Like uh, Deer Slayer. <laughs> and Stubborn was pretty funny, too. Can you imagine calling your dog Stubborn? <laughs> Come here, Stubborn. Or another one a friend has named Trouble. <laughs> here comes Trouble. <laughs> Well, there was a mention that one of the dogs lived 15 years, so. It's a great companion. Yeah. Can't say that ancient dogs had a short and brutal life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you're inspired by glycine as we are. Mm, it's enticing. It's enticing. And so if no one has anything else to add, 
Try it for yourself. Experiment. Collect data. And if you're looking for uh, good um, recipes for bone broth, which can be made from beef or chicken or even uh, seafood, uh, the book Nourishing Traditions. We did a show on it a couple of years ago now, I believe, <laughs> and um, pretty easy to make. Just make sure that you get ideally grass-fed organic meat or bones so you don't have to deal with that glyphosate issue or feel a little bit less stressed about the glyphosate issue. Um, and the one great thing about stocks or bone broth is that you can use it in everything. So making gravies or sauces. And so you can get that glycine naturally. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in for the shows this weekend. The Truth Perspective on Saturday and Newsreel on Sunday. And we'll be back next week with another interesting topic. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Have a wonderful day.